In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts. We ask your <clears throat> blessing to help us to open our mind and our heart to not always look at just the words, but the message. The message is far more important than the words. However, of course, being human as we are, we need both. So give us the strength and the grace really to see what it is that you want us to see, learn, hear through Holy Scripture. So we ask your blessing on our efforts tonight. And we just give you thanks and praise in all things in Jesus' name. Before I begin, uh, it was pointed out to me that early in the game we said that our said this session would end on April the 5th, which would be next Tuesday. It really will end the following Tuesday. So there's two more lessons or classes, class meetings after tonight. Okay. And at the last meeting, we'll do a summary of the whole book of Deuteronomy as well as the meaning of the four periods of Old Testament history. I think you'll see how those four periods really enter into this book or vice versa, and they will probably have more meaning uh, for you now. So let's remember that the session will end on April the 12th, not April the 5th. The 5th. Okay. Tonight we're going to be covering chapters 18 through 20. And you probably thought as you were reading this, well, ho-hum, you know, there's not too much that's really important in uh, these particular chapters. Uh, but you might be mistaken. There are some very important issues here. But I'd like to go back a little bit to the previous chapter because there's a point that we didn't cover uh, in talking about the centralization of the sanctuary. Yeah, well, anyways, there was quite a, a, a extensive uh, discussion here in the previous chapter about the sanctuary being centered in Jerusalem and all of the other uh, sanctuaries or altars or places of worship were to be destroyed. Well, that didn't exactly happen in that way. But as far back as King David, uh, David tried to do the same thing. When he united all of the kingdoms, uh, remember even further back when the Israelites first came into the promised land, God had each of them settle in a specific spot or specific plot of land or area within the promised land, and that is where they were supposed to stay. Well, that sort of ended with the Babylonian exile. But David united all of these kingdoms because they did become sort of little kingdoms, 12 of them. And uh, how many of you can uh, name the whole 12? All right. You know, and if you tried, you would probably get a little mixed up because 
the twelve sons of Jacob did not all become inheritors of land within the, the promised land area. And that is partly because you start out with twelve, but then Joseph, the second youngest, is the one that got sold off to the Egyptians and uh, became the Pharaoh's right-hand man, he married an Egyptian woman. So he did not inherit the land along with his brothers. All right? So that's a minus one here. But in place of, well, and then it was the Levites that did not inherit land for another reason. I think you all are familiar with why. They were designated as the priests to serve the remaining twelve. Alright, or eleven, whatever. So that's another minus one. But then, to bring it back to twelve, Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, were given plots of land, in fact, very large plots of land, to make up for the loss of their father. So, you still had 12 tribes that remained in intact pretty much up until the Babylonian exile. When David united all of these 12 tribes, under himself as the king, and this was done with their agreement and their blessing, he then tried to unite the sanctuary or the worship service in Jerusalem. And this was for the reason of keeping it pure, keeping it undefiled by the assimilation of existing influences from the outside. Now, if you take that a step into the current history, that is why Rome has always insisted, for the very same reason, to have control over all of the Catholic Church. And originally, over all the Christian church or churches. And that was to keep it united, to keep it in a uniform organization and keep control. Because, as you will probably find if you are familiar with other Christian denominations who have broken away from the Catholic Church, they all kind of teach their own thing. And some of them are very good at it, at it, and some of them are very bad or poor at it. Alright? Uh, Many of them have introduced other uh, forms of teaching, other theologies, other understandings and meanings. Um, many of the non-Catholic Christian denominations have eliminated the Eucharistic service altogether. And they rely solely on um, preaching, music, singing, and that's about it. And it's, it's really come down more or less in modern times to a form of entertainment. Which is sad because 
Christ has told us, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have life in you. And that, of course, is where the Eucharistic service comes in. That is the only place where you can obtain the body and blood of Christ. And as we talked about last week, it is because Christ wants you to become like him as much as humanly possible. But if you, as part of a non-Catholic Christian denomination, uh, go to church every Sunday or Saturday night, whatever, uh, and sing your heart out and read the Bible to kingdoms come, you could still end up in, you know what, because you do not have Christ's life in you. So I'm not putting any of the Christian denominations down. My point really is that it is said that they don't realize that themselves. But then again, many people like the easy way out. And they don't like some of the restrictions or the customs or the traditions of the Catholic Church. And yet, that is where Christ is located, within the Church. All right, And it's unfortunate that that isn't seen or isn't cared to be seen by many people. But the whole idea of centralization is important to the control and the purification of what is being taught. How many of you have thought or said to maybe someone else, after seeing an elderly priest peer over the book on the altar and read from it, you must have thought, and I was thinking of this myself uh, the other day when I saw this happening, this man must have read this a thousand times. You would think he already would know that. How many of you really thought in that way? All right. You know why? It is one of the rules of the church that the priest cannot wing it. Even though he may know it by heart, he cannot recite it from memory. He must read it. And that is in order to keep it uniform. Because if a person, and I've known priests, in fact I knew one priest, uh, who every Sunday would memorize the gospel and he would walk up and down the aisle reciting the gospel with a little dramatics and it was very effective. You really got the message. But that's a big no-no. The reason being is it's so easy to start slipping in your own little words here and your own little words there and your own little influences here and there. And the church says, uh-uh, we want to keep it uniform. Now, the beginning of Advent, next November, there will be some changes to the readings in the Mass and the responses. So we will all be involved in those changes. 
And the purpose of, and they're not significant changes, but they are changes, and there's quite a few of them. And the purpose of that is to get back to the original writings from which they came. Almost all of the Bible, I mean, I'm sorry, almost all of the mass readings in one form or the other have come out of the Bible. All right? Either the Gospels or the Epistles, uh, primarily of Paul, but all of them are involved and some of the Old Testament. But over the years, to make accommodations for modern languages, little changes have crept in. And every so often, we have to go back and make sure that what we are reading is what was intended by the writer. Because that's where the message came from. The writer was inspired by God, not somebody later who was a publisher or an interpreter. All right? Um, so that is one of the changes. And what will happen between, sometime between now and next November, is that there will be one or two classes, probably in here, uh, to enlighten everybody about what these changes in the wording will be. How your response, how your contribution uh, to the Mass, your participation in the Mass will change a little bit, but uh, enough to make it important. And you will want to know, I'm sure, why and where do these changes come from. Okay. I know that over the recent 10, 15 years, uh, this all-inclusivism uh, has crept into many of the uh, more recent Bible uh, revisions. And we're trying to get back to calling, well, trying to get back to the original statements intended by the writer of the uh, the readings that are presented in the Mass. So enough of that subject. Okay. All right. Uh, this whole idea of oneness, the whole idea of control by Rome, is for a good reason. Uh, many people might think it's, oh, it's very restrictive, and why should we, we have to run to Rome for approval on everything? But if we didn't, you would have uh, a very different church in every little perish. And they would start showing their differences and it would create problems uh, among parishes as well as among dioceses. Okay. Right. Any questions on that subject? Let's go on to chapter 18. I, want to, I don't want to really read all of this because uh, hopefully you've already read it, but I'm sure that you must have found some confusion in the identity or the distinction between the priests and Levites. And you're not alone because that has sort of confused or baffled scholars for over 2,000 years. 
Originally, it was intended, as I said earlier, that the tribe of Levi and his descendants would all be like priests serving all of the other tribes. Now, when you when I when I say priests, I don't mean that you should have a, you know a, a Father McDonald or a Father uh, well any priest, a particular priest in mind, because the operation of priests in those days were not the same as we have today. Uh, they were more uh, servants, you might say. Of Christian or, or servants of um, charity. But over a period of time, particularly after the Babylonian captivity ended, the exile ended, and people returned with a totally different attitude. Remember, they went to Babylon because they were sent to Babylon uh, as indentured servants or slaves because of their idolatry and apostasy, their evilness, etc., etc. But they finally got the message there and with the book of Deuteronomy, at least chapters 5 through 26, uh, and the assistance of the prophet Ezekiel, they finally got the message of why they were there, and they vowed to change. And as they came back to Judah and the area around Jerusalem, they did change. But that is about when the whole idea of the Levites being the priests versus the temple priests, and there is a little bit of difference, um, started to magnify, you might say the Levites began to lose importance and the temple priests began to claim increased importance. And by the time of Christ, the Levites had pretty much faded out of serving the people and the priests became almost the only rulers uh, of all of Judaism, with the high priest being the central are the most important ruler. King Herod was there only as a representative of Rome, uh, a Jewish, and he wasn't fully Jewish, uh, but nevertheless, he represented Rome to the Jewish people, and he represented the Jewish people to Rome. But he was hated along with the Romans because he was uh, looked upon as a collaborator or a conspirator. It was the temple priest, now I'm talking about the time of Christ, it was the temple priest and the high priest particularly who had most of the say-so, legal, social, and every other which way. They had no judges at the time of Christ, and they had very little legal system. Everything was based on the 613 laws, uh, supposedly, of the Mosaic Law. But if you are confused, don't feel uh, left out in any way, because there are a lot of people who 
cannot fully understand. In fact, can I borrow your book there? I want to read just a very brief. Says the high priest is a typical figure of post-exilic Judaism. Even in the time of the monarchy, there was certainly some kind of hierarchy among the priests in Jerusalem. Among them, there was one who is head over all and is numbered among the priests of the, of the king with the title, the priest. Uh, there is a distinction between, oh, never mind, I can't even pronounce it, it's one of those odd words here. But nevertheless, this is a book that I would highly recommend. It's called The New World Dictionary and Concordance. I think I've mentioned this before to some of you, but it's got a, just a world of information in it. It's set up just like a dictionary, uh, but it has all of these unusual words, and it goes into rather some lengthy detail explaining it. Okay? For example... Uh, on the subject of priest, it covers one, two, three, three and a half pages of information. Probably more than you ever would want to read or remember, obviously. But it has said exactly the same thing that I have. Uh, everyone is confused uh, on trying to understand the difference between the priest and Levite. Over a period of time, it changed with emphasis from the Levites to emphasis on the temple priests. And that's really all you need to know. Yes, Dick? Confusing the fact even more. When did the rabbis come in and what was their role? Rabbis was just a word meaning teacher. The rabbinic Jews really didn't start until the 4th century AD. Remember, as I've said, the four periods of Old Testament history, roughly 500 years uh, of each, very rough, but nevertheless, well, 500 years after the last, or almost 500 years, there was another uprising and another big change in Judaism, what we're talking about after Christ. And that's when the rabbinic Jewish, or rabbinic Judaism came into its own. So the rabbi is not the equivalent of our priest? No. No, he's a teacher. That's what the word means. Teacher. Synagogue. Yes. Yes. Remember, technically there are no temples. All right. The only temple was in Jerusalem, which was destroyed 2,000 years ago, never to be rebuilt. Now, you will see several buildings, you know, if you drive in through a Jewish neighborhood that will say temple this or temple that. Technically, that's not correct. But who's going to complain? Connie, do you have a question? Yes. You know, and that's that's sort of a generic use of the word teacher. He's not being referred to uh, as somebody who heads up a synagogue. No. 
because that wasn't quite the setup at that time. The word rabbi did not come into common use to refer to a head of a synagogue uh, until around the 4th century A.D. Okay, Steve? Yes. Yes, but that faded out. Uh, for example, St. John the Baptist's father, Zachary, was a Levite and served, and it says right there in Luke's Gospel, he served his week, I think it was, uh, in the temple. And that's because there were so many Levites that they had to draw straws or be assigned for a period to serve up uh, their time. And over, uh, but most of that time, by then, it was the temple priests who were in control. I, I'm curious about how, were the priests fed the same way the Levites were? Because it starts out with the, the people have to give the food to the Levites, right? Then you've then you got the priests. But then are they fed by the people too? Yes. The same yes. Way? Yes. What Anna is saying here is, in your book, it explains how tithing, well, who who benefited from the tithing? That went to the Levites. But then the Levites would have to take 10% of what they received and give it back to the temple. All right. Now, as the priests came along, they benefited in the same way. Whatever was given to the temple was then used by the priests. And then, of course, you had a little bit of friction between the two. So, uh, it is, it's a confusing subject, but something that I don't think we really have to worry too much about. Okay. Uh, yes, uh, Frank? Yes. They were appointed by their own people. Frank's question is, where did the judges come from? Were they priests or Levites? They were appointed by their own people. But that eventually faded out when the priests of the temple became dominant. So you didn't have judges, say, for example, at the time of Christ or for the, you know, roughly 50 years or so before. The judges faded out of of that. But they were elected. What's that? Well, yeah, but in a totally different way. Yeah. You see, the original judges appointed starting way back with Moses and then continued with uh, Joshua and Caleb and so forth. Uh, they were Jewish people appointed by their own tribes to represent them to settle disputes. Um, And so that would be quite a bit different. When Rome came in, but not Rome didn't come in until 63 B.C., uh, that all changed. 
and the judges had disappeared pretty much by that time, and the temple priests had taken over power. With the high priest being the chief poncho. Uh, pardon the expression. Okay. All right. Any other questions on that subject? All right. There's another subject in here that I really think is important. Part of my book has fallen apart here, so I'm having difficult difficult time keeping it in order. The whole idea of uh, the king, I think we've covered that in the past. If we go over to the uh, section on prophets on page 59, we talk briefly about the prophets, but the two kinds of prophets, the guild prophets, G-I-L-D, and the literary prophets. The literary prophets are those special men chosen by God himself to go out and preach the word of God. The word prophet in itself, the word prophet, means one who speaks for God. The guild prophets were a school of people who were trying to be prophets, but they took orders from the king. And when you had evil kings, you can imagine what some of their, these guild prophets' directives were. And the Deuteronomists would have a difficult time distinguishing themselves, uh, distinguishing the one from the other. So it says here, down in the uh, commentary, that the Deuteronomists didn't look very kindly on either the guild prophets or the literary prophets, and all of them ended up being killed by their own people, partly because they didn't like what was being said. All of the prophets, or almost all of the prophets, there were a couple of exceptions, but almost all of the 15 literary prophets, those who left writings behind and who are still uh, represented in your Bible, uh, those were men who were called by God for special reasons. And their time in service was all in the third period of Old Testament history. They came on the scene uh, late in the 10th century and they disappeared pretty much in the 5th century, the latter part of the 5th century. Okay, uh, And they were brought into the scene by God to balance or try to stem the tide or correct the idolatry that was being perpetrated by the temple rulers and the king. And if you read all of the various prophets, they all had one message, and that was obedience to the word of God, but they also had a sub-message that differed from place to place and from time to time. Because I said, these 15 men covered a period of roughly 500 years. So the situation changed a lot. 
And then to make matters a little more confusing, you had the situation, for example, in uh, the prophet Isaiah. If you read Isaiah, which is 66 chapters long, it is the longest of all of the writings of the 15 uh, prophets, you'll find that it covers a long period of time three or four hundred years. So obviously, it couldn't have been all written by one man. And it isn't. Chapters 1 through 39 is what they call uh, Isaiah, or Primo Isaiah. Uh, Chapters 40 through 57, I think it is, is the second Isaiah. Pretty much during the time of the Babylonian exile, and chapters 57 or 50, whatever, 56, 57, I forget which exactly, through 66 is the latter part of the 5th century after the return of the uh, exiled people to Judah. All right? And the prophet Isaiah is probably the most interesting um, of all of the writings. But my favorite is Jeremiah. Um, Ezekiel is the one that spent most of his time trying to convince the people of the southern kingdom not to make alliances with Egypt or any other one that God would protect them. And yet, of course, uh, they ignored his teachings. In fact, they eventually killed Ezekiel uh, because they didn't like what he said. Uh, But he's the one that really turned the people back to obedience and loyalty to God, at least for a while, during the Babylonian exile. Jeremiah is the one I like because uh, we know more about him than perhaps any of the others. Uh, he was a very young man. In fact, he didn't even want to be uh, a prophet, but God sort of appointed him and said, Thou shalt do it, and he did. Um, but he gives a lot of detail, and he cries and whines a lot, but he, he's probably the most human of all of the prophets and uh, well-rounded as far as the writings are concerned. But all of those prophets, all 15 of them, had a purpose to balance the evil of the kings and the rulers of that time period in the third uh, period of Old Testament history. Okay, Roughly from the time of King Solomon uh, down to and including the Babylonian exile. And then because things started to change, the people did finally get their uh, hands around what obedience to God really meant, uh, then the role of the prophets faded out. But here in your book, on page 59, it says, When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to imitate the abominations of the people there. Remember, they came in, the prophets came in to abolish or turn uh, turn the people back 
to God away from the abominations that you're talking about. Let there not be found among you anyone who emulates his son or daughter in the fire. Now, you all know what emulate means. Child sacrifice. Okay? Or oh, the word emulate means, you know, killing of human, human being. Uh, nor a fortune teller, soothsayer, uh, charmer, diviner, or caster of spells, nor one who consults ghosts and spirits or seeks oracles from the dead. All of these things were going on by the Jewish people at this time. And that is why the prophets were brought in uh, to try to stem that or curtail it. Okay. Anyone who does such things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of such abominations, the Lord your God is driving these nations out of your way. Well, see, that had already happened in the past. They're using the words to say that this is what the present people within Israel should be doing. You, however, must be altogether sincere toward the Lord your God. Those uh, through these nations, no, those these nations, excuse me. Though these nations whom you are to dispossess listen to their soothsayer and fortune tellers, the Lord your God will not permit you to do so. Now here's the important part of this passage. A prophet like me, Moses, will the Lord your God raise up for you from among your own kinsmen. To him you shall listen. This is exactly what you requested of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly. Uh, now, if you go over to the next page. When you said, let us not hear again the voice of the Lord our God. This goes back all the way to the time of Moses ascending the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. There was thunder and lightning and fire and trumpets and all kinds of stuff going on at the top of these mountains when Moses was called up and it so frightened the people that they didn't want to depend on listening to all of that they wanted somebody to lead them and that's why they accepted Moses as their leader because he wasn't afraid to go up there in the midst of all of that commotion up there on top of the mountains and bring down messages directly from God. So, Moses, <coughs> excuse me, Moses now, or the Deuteronomist in the, in the mouth of Moses is saying, a prophet like <coughs> Moses, will the Lord your God raise up from you among your own kinsmen? To him you shall listen. And this is the kind of king that you will then receive. Now, <coughs> go over to the next page. <coughs> this was well said. And the Lord said to Moses, or to me, this was well said. I will raise up from them the Jewish people, a prophet like you from among their kinsmen. 
and will put my words into his mouth. He shall tell them all that I command him. If any man will not listen to my words, which he speaks in my name, I myself will make him answer for it. Now, this whole passage is directed or pointing to whom? Jesus. Yes. It is the only place in the book of Deuteronomy that can that we can say points directly to Christ. Okay. Now, as we've said before, all of the books of the Bible in some way point to the event or the person of Christ. But you have to really understand and look very closely or read very carefully where to find some of these. All right? Now, in all of your reading of this book, have you ever come across the word Messiah? No. That's because the word Messiah did not come into common usage. The whole concept of Messiah did not come into common usage until around the 4th century B.C., long after the Babylonian exile. Right? Now, we are still in the 3rd period, roughly the ninth and the 8th century B.C. at the time of this writing. So obviously, these people would not have any knowledge of that. But this is a prophecy that is coming through these people. Whether they realize it or not, it is something that is truly a prophecy in reference to Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. Going on, it says, but if a prophet presumes to speak in my name, an oracle that I have not commanded him to speak, or speaks in the name of other gods, he shall die. And that is exactly what happened to the guild prophets. They all were phased out. They were all slaughtered in some way or other uh, by their own people. Okay. If you say to yourselves, how can we recognize an oracle which the Lord has spoken, Know that even though a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if his oracle is not fulfilled or verified, it is an oracle which the Lord did not speak. Now, it's interesting that if you take these words and you go over to the letter of St. James towards the very end of your Bible, you will see almost the same thing. And it is listed under discerning of spirits, where James is preaching that the Holy Spirit will guide you. This, of course, is after the death and resurrection of Christ. The Holy Spirit will guide you. But if you become concerned about whether or not a spirit of God is guiding you or not, then you are to question that spirit as to whether or not he can fully say, or it can fully say, that Jesus is Lord. All right. So, it's if you want to, I forgot the exact chapter and verse, but James is not very long. So, if you want to mark this and go on your own uh, and search the letter of St. James, you'll see the very same uh, wording in so many, uh, so many words. Okay. 
Yeah. But that doesn't mean that the others lived. You see, it's, the word only is not there. It means that they will die, and they all did. But so did the others. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, again, you have to kind of understand and, and put yourself in the mind of the Deuteronomists who are trying to project what should be done, not actually what has or will be done. Okay. Now we come to a subject that is always very confusing. The cities of refuge. Obviously, human nature is such that even in families we find Serious situations where that often result in death of one, you know, by another. And that is what this is really referring to. As I had said earlier, all of the tribes were to be sort of corralled into a specific territory. But if one carried out some kind of a crime against somebody in another tribe or even within their own tribe. They were generally punished by death if it was serious enough or lashes. We'll get to that in a little while, the lashes. <clears throat> but if it was accidental, and the example given here is two guys going out uh, to chop wood and the hand, the head of the axe flies off and strikes the one of them and is killed. The other can go to a city of refuge for protection uh, from the family of the deceased. There are other incidents where these cities of refuge came into use. Um, Remember, they didn't have prisons or that like they have today, where some of them are almost, you might say, like summer resorts, you know. And you have these people that are trying to make prisons be more like resorts than anything else. Um, in this time period, people were executed if they were found guilty uh, or let go if they were found not guilty, but that didn't always satisfy the families of the victims. So cities of refuge were set aside, and these were intertribal. In other words, you had various people or people from various tribes within a given city. Now, the interesting thing is, there is no record of where these cities were or are. Presumably, they would be not in the area that is considered Israel today. They would be on the eastern side of the Jordan. Now, that was Israel at the time, but it isn't today, as you know. Uh, so we don't really know a lot about it, so we don't really spend a lot of time in discussing 
these particular cities. <clears throat> Removal of landmarks. This is an interesting, uh, it's very brief, but yes, George. Yes. Homicide is killing. Murder. Well, yes, but they're giving the example of uh, a death caused through an accident. All right. Not something that is premeditated and planned and so forth. All right. <clears throat> Any other questions on, on that subject of the city? So I don't have a lot of good answers because, frankly, there just aren't any. Removal of landmarks. You shall not move your neighbor's landmarks erected by your forefathers in the heritage you received in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to occupy. As I said, all of the tribes were given a specific plot of land. And then, of course, that was divided up by the various families within the tribe. And they would have these uh, landmarks that would be a pile of stones Then you'd have, you know, about three feet high piled up. And this, <coughs> this would be the southwestern corner of the plot of land. Okay. Now, where in modern times would this have been used? Hmm? In the Old West, right. Yes right where we are today, but more likely in the plains. They used exactly the same landmark. Pile of stones directing the corners in the direction of where the land was to go. Okay? So. <clears throat> and you'd have the same thing over here, southeast, etc., etc. Yeah. Yes, Frank? Benchmarks? Oh, okay. Yeah, all right. They're the same purpose. Uh, but you can see how important they were because, you know, we didn't, they didn't have surveyors back in this time period. Uh, and so it was important that your plot of land was marked off. Okay. Uh, didn't come by fences and so forth, uh, easily enough. <clears throat> False witnesses. We had talked about this, I believe, last week. One witness alone shall not take the stand against a man in regard uh, to any crime or any offense of which he may be guilty. A, ju a judicial fact shall be established only on the testimony of two or three witnesses. There is a story in the book of Daniel, I think chapter 12, 
if you want, want to go to that. It's very brief. It's kind of an interesting story. For those of you who don't have the book, we can just sit and listen. In Babylon, there lived a man named Joachim, who married a very beautiful and God-fearing woman, Susanna, the daughter of Hilkiah. Her pious parents had trained their daughter according to the laws of Moses. Joachim was very rich. He had a garden near his house, and the Jews had recourse to him often because he was the most respected of them all. That year, two elders of the people were appointed judges of whom the Lord said, Wickedness has come out of Babylon from the elders who were to govern the people as judges. These now we're talking about shortly after the Babylonian exile. Okay, but apparently this story takes place in Babylon. These men to whom all brought their cases frequented the house of Joachim. When the people left at noon, Susanna used to enter her husband's garden for a walk. When the old men saw her enter every day for her walk, they began to lust after her. <clears throat> they suppressed their consciences. Um, they would not allow their eyes to look to heaven and did not keep in mind just judgments. Though both were in a mord of her, they did not tell each other their trouble, for they were ashamed to reveal their lustful desire to have her. Day by day they watched her eagerly. One day they said to each other, Let us be off for home. It is time for lunch. So they went out and parted, but both turned back. And when they met again, they asked each other the reason. They admitted their lust, and they agreed to look for an occasion when they could not, or when they could meet her alone. One day, while they were waiting for the right moment, she entered the garden as usual with two maids only. She decided to bathe, for the weather was warm. Nobody else was there except the two elders, the dirty old men, <laughs> who had hidden themselves. That was not in the book here, by the way. <laughs> uh, nobody else was there except the, the two guys, who had hidden themselves and were watching. Bring me oil and soap, she said to the maids, and shut the garden doors while I bathe. They did as she said, and they shut the garden doors and left by the side, side gate to fetch what she had ordered, unaware that the elders were hidden inside. Ooh. As soon as the maids had left, the two old men got up and hurried to her. Look, they said, the garden doors are shut. And no one can see us. Give in uh, to our desire and lay with us or lie with us. If you refuse, we will testify against you that you dismissed your maids because a young man was here with you. Ah, I am completely trapped. Susanna groaned. If I yield, I will. It will be my death. If I refuse, I cannot escape your power. Yet it is better for me to fall into the power without guilt than to sin before the Lord. Then Susanna shrieked, and the old man also shouted at her, as one of them ran to open the garden doors. When the people in the house heard the cries from the garden, 
They rushed in by the side gate to see what had happened to her. At the accusations by the old men, the servants felt very much ashamed, for never had any such thing been said about Susanna. When the people came to her husband Joachim the next day, the two wicked elders also came, fully determined to put Susanna to death. Before all the people they ordered, sends for Susanna, the daughter of Hilkiah, the wife of Joachim. When she was sent for, she came with her parents, children, and all her relatives. Susanna, very delicate and beautiful, was veiled. But those wicked men ordered her to uncover her face so as to sate themselves with her beauty. All her relatives and the onlookers were weeping. In the midst of the people, the two elders rose up and laid their hands on her head. Through her eyes, she looked up to heaven. For, I'm sorry, through her tears, she looked up to heaven. For she trusted in the Lord wholeheartedly. The elders made this accusation. As we were walking in the garden alone, this woman entered with two girls and shut the door of the garden, dismissing the girls. A young man who was hidden there came and laid with her. When we in a corner of the garden saw this cry, we ran toward them. We saw them lying together, but the man we could not hold because he was stronger than we. He opened the doors and ran off, and then... We seized this one and asked who the young man was, but she refused to tell us. We testify to this. The assembly believed them since they were elders and judges of the people, and they condemned her to death. But Susanna cried aloud, O eternal God, you know what is hidden and and are aware of all things before they come to be. You know that they have testified falsely against me. Here I am about to die, though I have done none of the things with which the wicked men have charged me. The Lord heard her prayer as she was being led to execution. God stirred up the Holy Spirit of a young boy named Daniel. And he cried aloud, I will have no part in the death of this woman. All of the people turned and asked him, What is this you are saying? He stood in their midst and continued, Are you such fools, O Israelites, to condemn a woman of Israel without examining and without clearing evidence? Return to court, for they have testified falsely against her. (laughs) Sounds like the executioner back then. (laughs) Then all of the people returned in haste to Daniel. The elders said, Come, sit with us, inform us since God has given you the prestige of old age. But he replied, Separate these two far from one another, and I shall, uh, that I may examine them. After the (coughs) old leeches were separated, that's not in here. (laughs) After they were separated, one from the other, he called one of them and said, How have you grown old, grown evil with age? How have your past sins, now have your past sins come uh, to term? Passing on just sentences, condemning the innocent, and freeing the guilty, although the Lord says, the innocent and the just you shall not put to death, 
Now then, if you were a witness, tell me under what tree you saw them together. Under a mastic tree, he answered. Your fine lie has cost you your head, said Daniel. For the angel of God shall receive the sentence from him uh, and split you in two. Putting him uh, to one side, he ordered the other one to be brought off the spring of Canaan, not of Judah. Daniel said to him, beauty has seduced you. Lust has subverted your conscience. And this is how you acted with the daughters of Israel. And in their fear they yield to you. But a daughter of Judah did not tolerate your wickedness. And now, tell me, under what tree you surprised them together? Under an oak, he said. Your fine lie has cost you also your head, said Daniel. For the angel of God waits with the sword to cut you in two, so as to make an end of you both. The whole assembly cried aloud, Blessing God who saved those that hope in him. They rose up against the two elders, for by their own words, Daniel had convicted them of perjury according to the law of Moses. They inflicted on them the punishment that had been plotted to impose on their neighbor <clears throat> that put them to death. And this was, thus was innocent blood spared that day. Helsia and his wife Praise God for their daughter Susanna, as did Joachim, her husband, and all her relatives, because she was found innocent of any shameful deed. And from that day onward, Dabel, Dabel, oh, excuse me, from that day onward, Daniel was greeted, esteemed by the people, and they lived happily ever after. Now, it's interesting that the book of Daniel, each chapter, there's 14 chapters in most books. There's only 12 chapters in the Protestant version because chapters 13 and 14 were added with the uh, writing of the Septuagint, that is the translation of the Jewish scriptures into Greek, from which our Bible is taken. So if you have a Protestant Bible, you would not have chapters 13 and 14 in it. Okay. Uh, but it's interesting that each chapter is written as if it were probably published separately as a separate story and then brought together uh, during the translation period in the 2nd century B.C. All right. Because each story is independent, I mean, each chapter is independent of each other. Like Deuteronomy, the writers had sort of a disguised purpose. They were writing during a time of persecution by the Greek Seleucid kings. These are the kings that divided the Greek Empire after Alexander the Great's death into ten different territories. Uh, five in North Africa and five in the Mideast. <clears throat> and they tried to impose uh, the Hellenistic or the Greek culture on the Jewish people. And so this story, Daniel, is 
sort of a condemnation of the Greek kings, but they couldn't say that uh, because the writer would have gotten his head lopped off right away. So what they did was they fashioned a sort of make-believe story, and they put it back into the 6th century, the Babylonian area, or era, the Babylonian captivity era, and they disguised the name of the king by calling him Nebuchadnezzar rather than Antiochus IV. Uh, So the whole idea is, when you read the book of Daniel, you've got to constantly remember that, that it is talking about events in the second century B.C., but the time period for disguised purposes is put back into the sixth, fifth, later part of the fifth century. No. Yeah, fifth, fifth or sixth century B.C. All right. So each one of these books of the Old Testament, again, if you don't know the history behind it, you're going to miss out on a lot of the true meaning of what is being presented. Again, the words themselves don't always tell you that. But it is the message that's important. And in this particular case, the message from that chapter is, as we were discussing earlier, the whole idea of witnesses. Two witnesses who say two or more witnesses who say the very same thing about uh, a crime being committed uh, about or by one of their own people could only be used. Uh, One witness alone cannot do that. That's part of Jewish law then and now. And of course, we have the same. We have picked that up and put that in part of our legal system as well. The whole idea of courage in war, well, I don't think we need to go into that very much. It sort of speaks for itself. But if you go over to page 63, right in the very center of the page, well, slightly below center, it says, what we read here, and elsewhere in the Deuteronomistic literature is an interpretation of Israel's battlefield experiences and memories, underlying memories. It hardly describes actual strategy and tactics. Remember that the 4th century, the time period from around the 10th or the 9th century B.C. down to the Babylonian exile in 587 B.C. was a time of constant warfare. Not always in the north and the south together, not in the north and the south against each other, but from outside influences. And it was a very difficult time but it was a prosperous time at the same. And the prosperity, particularly of uh, the southern kingdom, but really both, because there was, uh, through the northern kingdom, there was a trade route that went from the Mediterranean coast across northern Israel 
uh, into uh, the territories east of that. All right, so there was a lot of trade, there was a lot of commercialism going on both in the north and the south, and that was part of the cause for the idolatry and the apostasy. People were so caught up in the commercialism and the secularism that they felt they didn't need God, and they drifted away. In fact, importing all kinds of beliefs from other pagan nations. Amen. Yep. Yeah. Well, uh, you're right, I, you know, but there's no way to explain exactly what... Well, the, the idea has come up. I think everyone can agree with you, but no one has really been able to provide uh, a continuation of what was started here. Okay, And in fact, it wasn't started by the Deuteronomist. It was started way before that. Uh, nevertheless, there isn't a lot of history uh, or written documentation so that we can bring it forward in some historical fashion. Yeah, um, And that's true with a lot because as I've said before, there was so much warring during that 500 year period. And the first thing that the conqueror would do would be destroy the records of the nation that was being conquered. And so, so much of that has been lost. If you go, and, and I'd like you to do this as sort of a, not a test, but a, a sort of a verification of what I'm saying. Go to the second book of Kings and just, <clears throat> usually it's divided into various sections by the name of the king, both the north and the south. And you'll see at the end of each of these sections, when they would name a given king, you'll see that this person was more evil than his father. And, but all of the, uh, all of the uh, crimes committed or the accusations against them are now written in the book of Chronicles. <clears throat> but there isn't such a thing. That has been destroyed. And so we can't verify what is being said. So, you don't have a lot of history uh, to attach to these various kings, and there was 50-some of them uh, during that time period from David and Solomon down to the Babylonian captivity. Okay. Uh, it was a warring time, and it was very difficult. Yes, D? Well, that's, that's right. You see, all of the other Christian denominations... And the Catholic Church is not a denomination. You have to make that distinction. But all of the Christian denominations are breakaway from the Catholic Church. The church that, and let's go back to the 4th century, 313 AD to be exact, in the Edict of Milan, when Constantine signed an edict to allow uh, the Christians to worship without harm at their own will. That really established the church and its location um, 
not so much in Milan, but in Rome, after the <coughs> traditions of Paul and Peter and Paul. Okay? But the church speaks for God. And God said, Who sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. Who sins you shall retain, they are retained. And not only sins, but whatever it is that you speak comes from God. And so that's the way we have to look at the church. No, I don't, I don't recall that ever happening. Uh, obviously the church has supported certain wars for humanitarian purposes. Uh, yep, yep. Well, actually the most common situation of that is the accusation made by Jewish people against Pope Pius XII because he did not, uh, for at least outward appearances, support the Jewish people in the uh, German Holocaust. However, there are many documents that have proven that he did far more behind the scenes that could not be mentioned. Uh, and that is true. If you There's a book out by Carl Bernstein and, I forget the Italian co-author, uh, called His Holiness. It's about Pope John Paul II. It is not a religious book. It is his history. And it's the history of the relationship between Lequilenza and the Pope and Ronald Reagan in the demise or the fall of communism in Russia and in Poland. And it's a very interesting book. Uh, it's interesting because the Pope really didn't like Reagan, but he knew that he had to use Reagan and the power of the United States uh, to convince other countries, particularly Poland, to go along with it. And uh, the authors give a, a lot of detail about this three-way relationship that actually brought down uh, communism. And I think a lot of that went on with Pope Pius XII. But he could not make that public and did and chose not to make it public. So he's being accused somewhat uh, falsely based only, solely on what is known or not known by the people. Yeah. You're right, there's a lot of misunderstanding, there's a lot of uh, accusations made, some perhaps accurate. Uh, you go back to the Spanish Inquisition and times of that kind, and the church was decidedly wrong, definitely wrong. Uh, but the church has prevailed. There's another book by Crocker, I forgot his, Kenneth Crocker, I guess it is, Kenneth Crocker III, called Triumph. Just the single word, Triumph. It is an excellent book on the history of the church. It's not a religious book in any way. It just talks about the history of the church from the time of the apostles up through uh, 
the Second World War. It's an extremely interesting book because it brings out how at times in that 2,000 year period, if it was not for the church, there would be anarchy throughout the world. For many times during that 2,000 year period, the church was the only recognized legal authority on earth. And people recognized that, and that is why uh, the church has gotten involved in so many things that have really nothing to do with religion. For example, it was the church that established, or the Pope, I should say, but nevertheless, the church established uh, the prime meridian by which the earth is divided into 24 time periods and the international date line is on one side, the prime meridian is on the Atlantic side, and that was established by the church itself. Our calendar was established by the church. Uh, and there's so many things that go beyond, and the reason is because there was not any universally recognized authority who would come forth and be accepted by everybody to say this, thus, and so. So this book, Triumph, I think is an excellent book if anyone really wants to catch up on the history of the church. Okay. Any other questions? All right, let's end with a prayer. Father, we thank you for allowing us to examine and sometimes criticize the scriptures. That's all right, because we have done it for the sake and purpose of knowledge and understanding, for deeper understanding of the message. However, we appeal to you to help us to hear what you want us to hear and to understand what you want us to understand, free of our own biases and our own misconceptions. So help us then to open our minds and hearts so that we can hear the message and understand it as it applies to us. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.